Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. When I woke, I was in a Herod hospital in Berkeley. Place for young psychotics. A crazy place, you might say. <laughs> a place where everyone is doing their own one-man show. <laughs> Only it's not a sold-out night at the Marsh <laughs> to validate their experience. They're just rehearsing. <laughs> I am Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser. That was today's guest, Joshua Walters, performing at one of his sold-out one-man shows in San Francisco. Joshua is well known for using his stories of his diagnosis and life with bipolar disorder in his writing, stand-up comedy, and hip-hop lyrics. After hearing his TED Talk, I was interested in speaking with him about our shared diagnosis. When we jumped on the phone for my standard All the Wiser pre-interview, I realized it was the first time I had ever had a conversation with someone my age who also has bipolar. Because I had kept it a secret for so long, I never had the opportunity to talk to somebody who had that in common. I may have very well been sitting next to many people at dinners or flights or wherever I was in the world, but you simply can't connect with the things you are obsessed with hiding from people. So today I decided to mix it up, and this is something we will rarely do, because I love the traditional interviews we do. But I thought it would be interesting to capture my first peer-to-peer conversation about the label and diagnosis we both live with. One thing I know you will learn today is that bipolar, like any medical or human condition, has a wide and varied spectrum. Joshua and I have many touch points in little moments that only someone with a very unquiet mind can understand, I quickly became aware that his journey with this illness has been significantly more difficult than mine. So I just want to acknowledge that. And I hope you're as charmed by Joshua as I am. And of course, you learned something new. This episode supports Joshua's new nonprofit, Mad One Media. It's an audio magazine highlighting stories of mental health experiences. So they basically give people a platform to share their personal narrative. To listen and learn and find out more, you can check him and Mad One Media out at madone.me. Here's today's conversation with Joshua Walters and me. (laughs) Hello, Joshua, and welcome to All the Wiser. Hey, thanks for having me. First of all, I always ask our guests to introduce themselves because I believe they do a better job than I would. How would you introduce yourself, Joshua? I would say I'm a uh, performing artist hailing from the 
greater Bay Area in California, and uh, I have experimented with many different styles of performance and writing and creativity in my life, uh, starting with theater and um, a lot of those early narratives and early stories happened to do with mental health experience because that was something that happened to me when I was young and uh, a story that I carried with me as something that I could share with others and, you know, could be of value to other people aside from being, um, you know, just laughter or just something that's poignant in a, in a story, something that could really um, help people see that uh, they weren't the only one with said conditions, you know? And tell me a little bit about your childhood. What was your childhood like? Well, I was, uh, I was born in Berkeley. And then at a very young age, my, my folks, we moved to this little town south of San Francisco called Moss Beach. And uh, it was a little coastal village of a couple hundred people out by Half Moon Bay, out by the, the Brussels sprout fields. And, you know, by this, uh, Fitzgerald Marine Reserve where there's sea life and there's ocean life and you can come with your family and walk around and stuff. And um, it, was a, it was a pretty uh, happy childhood, two parents, only child. And I, and I grew up exploring my creativity and being open to creative you know, desires as a young person, being imaginative, being uh, full of creative stories, being a, a writer and an actor at a young age. And um, in high school, I went up to uh, San Francisco for this performing arts school, School of the Arts, and um, I fell in love for the first time. I discovered hip hop for the first time. And, uh, you know, I had this manic break for a first time and no one knew what it was. And, and back in 2001, no one really knew what bipolar was. What specifically did that look like? What happens in your life? What are you experiencing? What is your family and friends observing? Can you paint a picture of that? Yeah, I mean, family and friends didn't really didn't really comprehend what was going on, but it but it might have, you know, my my actions and my my words might have, you know, scared people at that time because it's you, when you're filled with, you know, as religious zealots call it, filled with the Holy Spirit, you know, you, you it kind of takes takes over. And um, my family was concerned, but we didn't know that it was going to change, you know, the course of my life so much or change the course of my family's life so much. So I don't think we had an understanding of where we we're all headed before that first manic break. What's happening? I mean, what are your changes in behavior? What are your changes in thought patterns? For somebody who doesn't know what a manic break is, or they may have heard the textbook definition or have a preconceived notion, but specifically what happens in your brain and your behavior at that time? Yeah, well, I mean, I think physically it's being filled with so much energy, you can't really control like what you're going to do. And, you know, being filled with this light, this energy, it it doesn't have to be a bad thing or it doesn't have to be uh, an illness or a, uh, you know, a condition as long as you're in the right context where it can kind of be explored and kind of be experienced. But, you know, in the world we live in, you can't really, you know, have these, you know, religious notions that you're, you know, the son of God and that you're, you're here for the revolution of all of humanity. You can't really go into that without causing some alarm and causing some teachers to, you know, maybe kick you out of their class or, have some friends get concerned. So, you know, my, my first trip was religious, you know, it was, it was about, 
God sending me these messages. And then I was, you know, this person that had this great value in the world to explore, you know, what humanity was here for. And I've had subsequent episodes that took different themes, but that first episode was kind of foundational in that those feelings of, yeah, falling in love and um, experiencing kind of the universe opening up, whether that was seeing, you know, clouds in the sky kind of as doorways or experiencing people in my classrooms as kind of different figures from history, whatever the delusion was, it was very real. And not having experienced this before, it was, uh, it was something that, yeah, it was very powerful. And so I've heard you speak about that and almost this notion that the grandiose thinking around religion and your religious experience and they were Jesus and you're experiencing everything around you very vividly and very deeply. And that led to your first time being checked into a mental facility. Yeah, I mean, I think I got to the point in my school where there came a point in this long week where I was expressing myself in ways and not sleeping so much and maybe causing some concern where, yeah, I needed to be taken out of school. And so, yeah, my mom came and got me and we went to the emergency room and, you know, that's kind of the beginning of going into the hospital for those who haven't uh, experienced it in that order. But you, you go into the emergency room and they kind of assess what's going on with you. What is the emergency? And, you know, do you have a broken bone or is this kind of like, are you having an episode? And during my time in the emergency room, I kind of lost sense with the reality. I was kind of at the point where, you know, the dream world and the, the waking world kind of started to blend. So I, I didn't really know if it was day or night or who these people were or if I was having religious visions. And eventually I kind of, I don't know, I got really angry or I got, I got really filled with the, the spirit, you know, and, um, and, uh, and, I, and I started to kind of take over my hospital room or the hospital and they had to kind of back me in and shoot me full of tranquilizer. And, you know, that's kind of the decision that they made to kind of take me to a, uh, a youth mental hospital. And you're 16 at this time. Yeah, 16. And so how long are you there? I was there a couple of weeks. Usually when you go in, um, they give you about two or three weeks and it's disorienting because you're not at home and you have to figure out who these people are around you and you have to deal with your own hallucinations as they're happening to you there. And so you, it's, it's, that time is a time for you to uh, settle down and kind of let the medications take their effect and let the hallucinations kind of resolve themselves. So one of the things about a place like that is, is it's traumatic to be in there, but you're also in a safe place and people are watching you. They're checking in on you every 15 minutes. You get food, you have a place to sleep. So it's kind of a place where you can kind of work through that episode and be uh, monitored and also get some help. So, And that's where you got your diagnosis? Yeah. So, I mean, that was kind of like the first step of me and my family being like, well, what is this? Or having to figure it out or read up on it. And am I just going to go back to school now? Or how does that all work? And I know you do go back and I've heard you say that then, so post hospital, you know, the now 16 going forward, that you were very numbed by medication, which I imagine is an artist not I imagine, is not where you want to be. But is that accurate that that you would experience the rest of high school of being somewhat numbed from medication? Yeah, I mean, mean, up to sophomore year, I had a pretty good run of like, you know, being an AB student, being uh, pretty creative and being engaged and kind of like, 
you know, the extracurriculars. And then once I was asked to kind of medicate every day, I, I uh, yeah, I was sleeping through class. I, I couldn't really focus. Sometimes the, uh, the side effects were I couldn't read, like I couldn't actually read the books and, or would have like really shaky, you know, like shake tremors, you know, in the middle of class or, so I was kind of, I was pretty much checked out for most of the rest of high school, you know? So that experience was like, it put the fear of God into my parents that, oh, that could never happen again. You know, oh, you know, that could, that that's not allowed. And so we would put me on the medications, but you know, the medications are their own problem if they're too much or if they're over sedating. It's also how it interacts with your unique body. I mean, when I first went on medication, I would have blurred vision. I mean, I literally would pull over and couldn't drive. I mean, I couldn't see. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had that too. Yeah, I had that too. Yeah, uh, I, I call it the eye lock. You know, some of the meds would give me like, I just couldn't see and I had to pull over. I, I definitely had that experience. So speaking of our shared experience, I want to, well, I mean, there's so many things that I want to talk to you about. Something you're passionate about and I am too, and I don't know the sifting out for me of this illness about what is me and what is a chemical imbalance. So a lot of these things I think are celebrated, right? Certainly the creativity, the productivity at times, this like really robust sense of confidence and gregariousness and, you know, and there's fascinating studies we can talk about about how it it impacts work and success. But how would you describe your relationship of the chemistry of your brain and your work, your professional self, your creative self? Yeah. So I, you know, I've, I've described myself as a sound artist and that can involve voices or little beatbox or little rapping or, you know, musical elements. And so I'm doing that throughout the day. And, you know, for someone to observe that or be like in the next room or, you know, be a housemate of that, yeah, I mean, it, it all kind of seems kind of like a little nutty or a little wild, wild, you know, he's wilding out. But that's just kind of how I process whatever messages I'm receiving and whatever um, whatever inspiration I'm getting from the day. So, you know, a little, you know, someone, someone would sing in the shower or whatever, but, you know, I'll take it to continuing that with that four-bar rap to the, the breakfast table. And, you know, I think in a time when it becomes too much is only when other people can't handle it and where it's keeping me up. I mean, as long as I'm able to kind of, you know, get to sleep at some reasonable hour, then, I mean, it's not really a problem for anyone else. So we can't talk about that piece of yourself. Well, we can, but I always, I, because I'm visual, I always say, you know, bring it to life or paint the picture. Yeah. Can you beatbox right now? Can you give a snippet of that? Yeah, yeah. This is a new mic. I'm I'm using a new mic and I've I've experimented with it and it it sounds pretty good for beatbox. The record scratch one is like that's dope. No, that's the, that's the pivotal, you know, that's the pivotal, you know, transitional, you know, where cuz I the vocal ticks of the record used to be my main inspirational sound, which is the the high the highs, and then you know there's the and um, 
you know, I, I started with this beatbox group, this uh, three-man beatbox group, and I was the rapper and the scratcher. And then when the group dissolved, you know, I just did all the beats myself. Yeah, I mean, I think like mild mania, right? So not not the destructive behavior, but that mild mania is just this cocktail of creativity, of adrenaline, of productivity. I mean, for you, it's producing art, right? Music, spoken word, and, you know, all things audio and artistry that you produce in the world. Comedy is a huge piece of your career and your sense of self. For me, that creative, you know, the the dance with the madness of it, like you're saying, like, it just comes to you, right? Like, you can't not express it. My mind is ideation, like big ideas, big creative ideas. And it's constant often, it's ever present. And so like some of my stories about my outward reflection are on paper or like, you know, if anybody has ever seen me whiteboard, it just explodes, right? There's this idea, there's this idea, it's rooted in this. And I remember at times this was kind of during a, manic episode, waking up in the middle of the night and writing down just pages and pages and pages of ideas and waking up the next morning and like almost that awareness, right? Because I understand it of like, this looks like a crazy person wrote it, you know, oh my gosh. But the reality is- a crazy person did. They they did write it. (laughs) Good point. Thank you for clarifying. Thank you for for using the adjective that's always my worst nightmare. Um, We can get into that. That's like for the couch, right? (laughs) Therapy. But here's the thing. The ideas, some of them were really good. And not only were they really good, but I had that adrenaline surge, the productivity and the confidence to bring them to life, to bring them for fruition. So when I look back on some of my, and there's there's science around this, people's promotions are often tied to manic episodes or hypomania. Some of the, the things that I've created in the world that I'm most proud of were rooted in that, the constant ideation, the constant idea, the constant adrenaline, the companies couldn't value that more. She's full of ideas and she'll fly anywhere in the world and she'll, you know, give up sleep for creating and producing. She's gregarious and outgoing. She's confident in meetings. It's like, yeah, like this is, let's applaud, which is really interesting. And I think there, there is a lot of that that has added great benefit and richness to my life. But the creative surges, I do think are just, you know, so clearly tied when you begin to connect the dots. Yeah, yeah. And that comes with being a creative person and also a producer and having the drive to want to create things that are your own initiative. I mean, you get this idea, you write it down on a piece of paper at four in the morning, and maybe two years later, that one sentence becomes like a paragraph and then, you know, it just builds. And so then that thing is your book or your movie or your podcast or whatever it is. And so these type of things, they take a long time. And um, I like how at the beginning of that spiel, you called it mild mania, like, like kind of like there's different uh, versions of salsa, you know, like there's the mild and there's the extra spicy and then there's the really spicy. And and yeah, when I talk about it too, you know, hypomania is kind of this, I've had trouble with that with that phrase because it's like, it's always been used against me. Like, oh, he's beatboxing. Like that's the hypomania or or oh, he's, you know, he's really, you know, getting into a character. That's the hypomania. Because because that phrase is always like, oh, it's going to be taken to the next level. You know, you're in the first month of that 
that episode. And then, you know, the week before you go in the hospital is like mania. And then like the month before you're building up to it, that's the hypomania. But it doesn't always have to go that way. It doesn't always have to like end up that way. And the historical reference to creators, and I'm always like self-conscious of saying this because I don't want to be like, oh, this is proof that there's value in gene and yes, or impact because <laughs> not even close to being in the category, but the people, it's like Jimi Hendrix, Hemingway, Winston Churchill. I don't, I don't think that can be right, but apparently they, people say he did sleeplessness and the constant you know, flood of ideas and the art and the writing. And he, and he referred to it as black dog. But there's, you know, sad endings, obviously Hemingway's one, Kurt Cobain, Frank Sinatra, they say in hindsight. Who else? Carrie Fisher. There's a lot of artists. Yeah, yeah. And Carrie Fisher was uh, one of the ways that I got a, a, one of my first interviews where she bowed out and then they they contacted me somehow. I don't know how they found me, but anyone you can really name. I mean... Russell Brandt, yeah, who I've met and I could have, you know, diagnosed him within two minutes of talking to him. Yeah, but and he he also diagnoses himself, you know, yeah. he, he uses the <laughs> language. Yeah, I mean, as someone who, you know, has called themselves, you know, a bipolar comedian. Okay, so you talked about comedy and I've heard you talk about the value of comedy because for most people, this is like a serious thing to talk about. I don't think it has to be, but it is for most people. So like where comedy plays a part in serious things, like weighty things. Can you explain it? Because I thought it was really cool how you explained it. Yeah, I mean, for me, part of my stage life as a solo performer and creating one-man shows, I was I was always kind of, what is funny about mental illness and mental the mental health experience? What are the funny moments? And And, you know, when you're being locked away or you know, where you're, you know, suffering a, a depressive episode or, you know, there's a lot of things that are so traumatic where you're not seeing the humor in it in that, in that moment. But yeah, I mean, part of humor is having that time to kind of digest something painful and then kind of glibly talking about it in a sentence or two. So I think it's important to remember that when you decide to tell your own story and, you know, use your experience as, as a narrative or a benefit to other people. You know, you choose what your bullet points of your story are. You ch- and you also choose what to leave out because part of comedy is telling the unflattering parts, telling the unflattering truths and uh, going into moments that are kind of awkward or weird or, yeah, kind of strange. And, um, you know, there might be moments that are too strange or too unflattering where you look back at those stories and you're like, oh, I was a really horrible person that day. And, I did things that I really regret. I don't really want to relive that. I've found tremendous value in sharing pieces of myself that I was sort of eternally ashamed of or thought, you know, if I expose this, people will reject me, people will judge me, you know, all those sort of innate fears that we have. But then I do think there's that line you're talking about of we don't necessarily owe it to anyone to share every piece of ourself. You know, there's there's pieces that are intimate and private and deserve to be. And that doesn't have anything to do exclusively with mental health. I mean, I don't think any person is obliged to talk about their lowest, darkest moments um, on a public platform. But there's like a seesaw of the middle because it it can be of service, right? Sharing that and, and having people relate or having people feel less alone 
or having people learn something. What I, I do think you really have to be thoughtful and intentional about what you share and who you share with, right? Yeah, and, and, and how you want to be portrayed. I mean, like, this is going to land a certain way or people are going to have their own experience with this or how you say it is going to really, you know, make you look like this or that, you know? Yeah, there's a lot of pause and sharing, but one now that I have shared, which is interesting that this came up for me, is almost like a not enoughness piece of like, I haven't been hospitalized or, you know, I haven't attempted suicide. It's almost like a cancer thing, right? Like, oh, I shouldn't talk about it because, you know, somebody has stage four, they're like stages ahead of me. And so do I have a place in this mental conversation? And as you said, anybody who has this disorder, illness, whatever you want to call it, experiences the world very deeply, very deeply. And that goes with the highs, right? The colors you see in the world, the ideas that come out of you, it's elevated. But the lows are pain. And what we know is that pain and suffering are collective, right? And so where I see it, like for me, is I'm drawn to having hard conversations And I I wonder, maybe I even know that because I have experienced my own unique, that I can show up in a way that is authentically, deeply compassionate and empathetic. So part of bipolar is overthinking and ruminating. So that's a bunch of overthinking about my job and how it applies. But I think it's true. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, during that that pre-interview, you know, we were kind of talking about the things that I've lived through, you know, very briefly. And, and you're like, well, I haven't been hospitalized. And what my thought was like, well, how do you know, how do you know it's you, you know, how do you know it's, it's, it's that condition? Like, did you go into a a doctor's office and you told them some stories and then the doctor was like, oh, it sounds like, it sounds like you have this, or it sounds like you're, Mm -hmm. you're, you're one of these categories, you know? And I think it's important to remember that the label, the mental health label that we're assigned or that we're diagnosed with by a doctor, I mean, it's really up to us to resonate with that label. Like for me, you know, the first, you know, 10 years of my illness, I was very much pro-label, I was pro my diagnosis. I used it in my shows and I defined myself as this person with this illness before I described myself as a performer. It was the illness, then the performer. But as I grew and as I changed and I experienced other experiences and even other diagnoses, I was like, well, maybe this isn't me, you know? And once you put it out there in the world, once it's on your video and your your thing and people find you and resonate with it, it's already out there. But as you change and you evolve, you might say, that's not me anymore. I want to tell a different story or I don't want to just tell one story. I, it's not the descriptive that I would lead with for myself, nor would I lead. I'm, I know we're just getting to know each other, but, you know, I don't think that it's the headline. Everything has a cost benefit. We've talked about benefits. What do you think has been the greatest cost of living with bipolar? I would definitely say the greatest cost is not being able to really be consistent with my lifestyle place of residency, relationships, jobs, because on any given year, even if I'm doing well, you know, I can have a episode or maybe the meds are too low and I have an episode or whatever it is. And I've only really been stable 
you know, like half the time, you know? So whenever something was building or there was a momentum, let's say I got a few radio or TV performances or I got on TED Talks or whatever it was, and that momentum got me a speaking career or a speaking agency and I was traveling and I was performing and things were really taking off, that could only last so long before the illness came back or before the condition got its best of me. And, and the kind of paradox of it is that my success was championing the condition, championing my recovery story and the things I have lived through and kind of using that as a badge of honor, using those diagnoses as a badge of honor and using those stories as something that I'm going to share openly with. But those stories ultimately wrap around and come and get you and kind of swallow you back up again. So I haven't really been consistent, you know, when I look at the, the last 20 years, I haven't really been consistent in, oh, he, he did this one thing, you know, for so long. Um, I've had to take a lot of breaks or a lot of years off or a lot of uh, time where a relationship or a job needs you to kind of show up every day, you know? So consistency is kind of my weak point as far as Cost. The condition, yeah, the yeah. the cost, and and so yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I th when I think about the cost, it always comes to me of like I think sort of peace, if that makes sense, or like full, true. It's not necessarily presence, but I almost look at somebody curled up reading a book, and I think like, what would that feel like, right? Like, what would that settled, calm mind, and that's so hard for me. And I associate it with peace, with a, a quietness, a stillness that is elusive, that I that is so hard for me to achieve. And now more that people, you know, talk about the power of that, right? The deep presence, the mindfulness, all that. And I think like, wow, if that isn't the opposite of what lives like at times raging, you know, within me. And I was reading like about job recommendations for people with yeah. bipolar and they're like, we recommend, you know, structure and a nine to five and, you know, predictability because the stimulation of your brain is like a train. And I'm like, every job, like work in television, work in film, work in like, and it's just, you know, the hours are endless and it's an adventure and there's like big ideas. And so I think that's what I always walk towards because it's what is innate to me. And I have had stability. I think my stability is rooted in one person, which is my husband, because we built a consistent life and now a family. But that piece of it, sometimes I feel like I'm missing, I don't know, there's there's something that I crave that doesn't feel attainable. And you also wanted to do something that you're passionate about. I mean, that's kind of, you know, people do that more and more, but that's kind of the artist's way, right? Is that you're not going to have a nine to five, you're not going to work something and do something that you're not passionate about just for a paycheck. You're going to live your dream and pursue something that's, yeah, endless hours and a wild adventure, but it's also something you really want to do. Well, let's talk about relationships because you talked about, you know, dating and relationships and I, I talked, you know, about my husband. So I'm curious in your personal relationships, how you think it impacts things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that wild, you know, a hypersexuality, flirting with the cosmos, being out there and, you know, passing out your flyers and inviting, you know, random people on the train to come to your show and, you know, all that kind of Gregorious out there energy 
extrovert energy. You know, I, I definitely experienced that. And it was a part of my shtick. It was a part of my, like, what I did in a day. And, you know, one of the problems with, you know, going into the hospital several times, you know, I've been in close to a dozen times, is that when you go in, the probability that your person, your spouse, the person you're dating will be there for you is not always guaranteed. And, you know, for, for me, I've gone in and, you know, most of the time that's kind of the end of my relationship. The person is like, oh, well, this guy has a, a serious problem and that's not for me and I'm going to find somebody else. And I totally understand that. You know, I, I get that, you know, not everyone is that lovable, but I mean, to be honest, I mean, it's, is something that I bring up, you know, at least by the second date when I'm dating someone is that I have all these experiences and I could explode at any moment. And, you know, I have to, you know, keep on my meds and all these things that are kind of like deal breakers and also kind of like forewarning and warning signs and like a warning label because, you know, the person that you get involved with has the right to know that you have those experiences and that you are going to be upfront with them. And that when it happens, they're not going to be like, oh, what is this? They're going to be like, oh, he's going through this thing. And I mean, they're going to be there for him and be there in the hospital for him or not. Well, I'm sorry. I can't imagine that experience of going to get help, being in that place, and then knowing that the person you love is likely not going to be there. And I will correct you in saying that I think you're lovable. <laughs> I mean, I think... Like in my relationship, I'm so deeply emotional and I experience things so deeply, which I've said many times. And my husband is, and I'm not an overly emotional, you know, he's, he's very even keeled in his, the way he experiences things. So it's like part of, I would say, and he, I think he would say the same thing is his early attraction, his continued attraction to me is a lot of it is my mind, like a deep respect for my mind and ideas. And I also think that the fun in me, the spark in me, the sparkly piece of me, he likes because it's fun to be around. But then with that, right, becomes just the, it's like the safe place to pour out all these emotions, these fears, these thoughts, these ideas. And I now get, because I'm more aware that that can be exhausting, right? That can be an exhaustive piece of me. So now I think I'm more evolved in that I try and say like, okay, where's an outlet for that, which isn't going to require him to like have all that energy. I've been with him since I, you know, the year after I was diagnosed, but I get now that like that busy brain, you know, I get how exhausting it is. And then when you're outwardly putting that on, or even people who've like worked for me and I look back, I'm like, wow. I wanted to work 12 hours a day because my ideas wouldn't stop. And I felt like, you know, I had this high. They probably didn't. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're re on the receiving end of that. So I don't yeah, know. To them, I, it's just a job, you know? To them, you, it's, it's just a career. Yeah. It's like, it's never ending. Never. The ideas are coming and coming and like it all results in something. And a lot of times something that's exciting to be a part of. My inner exhaustiveness, I think about how other people experience that. And sometimes I feel, you know, guilty for that. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That does make sense. And what you're talking about with your husband, I mean, for me, the creative chemistry is always number one and like you're attracted to someone's mind and who they are and how they think. What are the unhealthy ways in which you have 
coped with this illness? Oh, man, it's kind of a, that's a lot. There's a lot in that question. I don't think I'll be able to unpack it all, but unhealthy ways. I mean, you know, for me, whenever I'm cutting ties with family or, you know, switching up my phone number four times a week or, you know, wiling out wherever I am, there is a high level of disrespect and anger and also kind of resentment that can kind of build within me and also, you know, against the people who I love the most. And so, you know, you're not going to go and find your enemies and lash out at them. You're going to lash out at the people who are calling you every day because they really want to know how you are doing. And so I think it's, you know, important to have some perspective and some hindsight on like, who's really going to be there for you when you get out, you know, and who's going to really like take you in and who's going to put you up and who's going to keep calling you and who's going to forgive you and who's going to keep building and um, who's going to be there in the long run. And yeah, your, your family members are kind of first on the list, but even they have their limits and also, you know, learn that everyone's a human being and everyone has their own, their own feelings and their own things that they're going through. And so what you're going through might not correlate or be at the same time with what they need or what they can handle. So, you know, whether it's family members or a relationship, it's like, yeah, what can that other person handle, you know, and what can you give in return for them putting up with you? And what are the things that work for you? Like when you are sort of in a range that is healthy, if you will, what is it? Is it like medication? Is it awareness? Is it like, you know, I don't know, medication, meditation, you tell me. Yeah, there's so many things. This is a big part of, you know, my practice in being a producer like you, Kimmy, is that I want you know, individuals to share their wellness tools and what works for them as kind of teaching lessons. And so when it comes to myself, I mean, I have a whole long list of, you know, things that I know work for me and then when I'm doing well and that I can actually get up and, you know, at a reasonable time and, you know, perform these kind of ritualistic morning rituals of, um, you know, of exercise routine and, you know, warm lemon water and get outside with the sun and, you know, being productive and being creative is definitely a part of that mojo and a part of that stride. Being balanced with meds, not too much meds, not too little meds is definitely the right balance. And also reaching out to family members and, and friends and, you know, reaching out, you know, having a call with someone, maybe that's once a day or whatever, seeing someone and uh, hearing someone's voice. All these kind of things that are kind of basics, you know, nutrition and all the kind of things that you want to build for yourself. But, you know, I really find that the creative practice of writing, speaking and kind of recording and kind of, you know, monetizing my thoughts, you know, seeing those thoughts and those, and those feelings to kind of process them because we're all going through something every day and it's important to feel your feelings every day. Yeah, I agree. And I think all of those things that are so obvious and, and it's important to say, like, I think everybody struggles with certainly their emotional health, right? But mental health, as we all know, especially right now, is so prevalent. And it is those basic things like medication, being conscientious of sleep and what you eat and routines. And it makes a huge, huge impact. And it's imperfect, but those things work and they make a difference in your day-to-day -day life. And that collectively 
can be really impactful. Yeah. And I, I want to just briefly mention that, you know, we are at this epidemic of loneliness, you know, happening right now. And uh, I think it's super important to reach out and, you know, have some human contact, whether that's over the phone or, or whatever it is, and not get swallowed up in your own bubble and your own thought process. And, you know, I think another thing is attaching your life and attaching your purpose, something bigger than yourself, which is a big learning point that I can't really stress hard enough. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful point. Thank you for saying that. All right. So I normally end with something called rapid fire, but I talked to Erica, who's my producer, who turns out, you know, and we decided two sides of the coin. We're switching it up. There will be no rapid fire. There will be two sides of a coin. So I'm going to say something and you are going to say the opposite side of the coin. And we, you and I, I think are both really interested and curious and passionate about changing language. So this is a cool way to do it. All right. Okay. So two sides of the coin, manic highs. Manic highs, creative exploration. Other side? Um, Indifference and being unpassionate. I would say creativity. And the flip side is restlessness and lack of awareness. Mm. Depressive lows. Humility and groundedness. So that's the good, right? Yep. The bad. I mean, there's a long list, but pick one. Not being able to function. Lows. I guess it's a deep experience of isolation and loneliness. Flip side opportunity to become a deeply empathetic person because you get pain. Two sides of a coin, medication. Balance. Flip side? Sedation and not living up to your fullest potential. Medication. Stability, opposite, blurred vision, (laughs) loss of memory and waking. (laughs) All right, well... You are out there in the world performing. Where can we find you? Where can we follow you and see what you're up to? Yeah, my latest project is um, this group of shows that happen to do with uh, mental health stories, mental health narratives. And um, it's a new kind of like a podcasting group or podcasting label of uh, narrative stories called Mad One Media. And it's a place to connect with me as a mentor, as a coach, and also uh, hear some stories that will resonate about mental health experience. Joshua, I am grateful to now call you a friend. I am grateful that we were able to capture this conversation. I hope it makes a difference to some people who are listening. And let's stay in touch. And thank you for being a part of All the Wiser. All right. Thanks for having me. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Joshua. And I want to say thank you again to all our listeners who have been leaving reviews. I don't know what has happened, but we seem to have a lot of new reviews lately. I read every single one and they mean a lot to me and they compel me to continue putting out this work. So thank you. And if you have yet to rate and review the podcast, I am always incredibly grateful for your support. 
and helping other people discover all the wiser. Take care of yourself and you will, as always, hear from us next Wednesday. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read our show notes, or get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast. Send us a note. We would love to hear from you. And as always, thanks for listening. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.